You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at redeemerfortbend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. season. And as November 3rd approaches, I can't help but notice how politics seems to consume more and more of our thinking. Conversations I used to have with Christians, which centered on theology and church life, are increasingly dominated by the election. Social media accounts of Christians who used to regularly post scripture or articles from uh, various pastors are now largely political. And as I was preparing this sermon and thinking about this passage, my mind kept returning to two things I've heard Christians repeatedly say over the last few months. If you don't vote for candidate X, our nation will fall. If you don't vote for party X, persecution will come. As though the destiny of our country and the protection of believers is contingent upon choices that we make at the ballot box. But friends, that is emphatically not biblical or true, because this perspective has entirely forgotten the truth of the sovereignty of God. And that's what we'll see today as we continue our study in the book of Daniel. Today we're going to continue in the section of the book of Daniel in which God gives Daniel a series of four prophetic visions. And Last week in chapter 7 we saw the first of these visions, and there Daniel was shown an outline of world history represented by a succession of four monstrous beasts. And then God slew the last of these beasts, and one like a son of man, the Lord Jesus, received power and authority to establish an unending kingdom. And he will share his reign with his people forever. That was chapter 7. Now, today we come to chapter 8, which is a vision that builds on what we saw last week, but which emphasizes some different ideas, some different themes. And I would tell you that Daniel 8 is probably one of the less well-known parts of this book because understanding it requires an understanding of history. And a lot of people find history to be boring. I'm not one of those people, but I know that some of you guys are. Uh, But I would tell you we need to learn what this chapter has to tell us. First of all, because this is God's Word. This is what God has given us to equip us for life. And so we need to study this chapter. But second, I think that as we study this chapter, we will discover that history contains patterns. Patterns which teach us about what is going on in our own time and about what will happen in the future. I think Daniel 8 speaks powerfully to us today, and especially if you are caught up thinking obsessively or anxiously about what's going on in today's political climate, I especially want you to pay attention to this sermon. Because this chapter reminds us of the transitoriness and the evil of this world. And it reminds us of the sovereign power of God, and it reminds us of the ultimate victory that belongs to believers, which is not in this world. Okay, so today we're going to be in Daniel 8, and we're going to look at four points. First, we're going to see that nations rise and nations fall. Second, we're going to see that leaders rise and leaders fall. Third, we're going to see that antichrists rise, and for a limited period of time, the people of God fall. And fourth, we're going to see that the Lord reigns, And he limits the duration of the evil that his people suffer. Start with our first point, which is that nations rise and nations fall. If you have a Bible, look at Daniel chapter 8, verse 1. We read, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, 
after the one which appeared to me at the first. So we're now two years after the vision of chapter 7, and Daniel receives another vision from the Lord. And in the first 14 verses of this chapter, we find the content of this vision. Then we read in verse 15, When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And the Lord obliges Daniel, verse 16. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli. This is a waterway that Daniel's standing next to as he receives this vision. And the voice called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. All right, so the Lord sends the angel Gabriel to Daniel. And although Daniel's overwhelmed by being in the presence of an angel, Gabriel picks him up and explains the vision that he's just received. And we see that explanation in verses 19 through 26. So what we're going to do today is we're going to go through principally verses 1 through 14 and examine Daniel's vision. And as we do that, we will pull in the later verses where Gabriel explains to Daniel what it is that Daniel's seeing. For Daniel, this vision points to events which were in his future. But for us, this vision points to events which have taken place long in the past. And we see that as we see now that nations rise and fall. Chapter 8, verse 2. He says, And I saw in the vision, and when I saw I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. When Daniel received this vision, he lived in Babylon, which was then the greatest city in the world. But in the vision, Daniel finds himself somewhere else, in Susa. Now, when Daniel received this vision, Susa was a moderately important city, kind of like Baton Rouge, maybe, the next provincial capital over. But ten years in the future, Susa would become the capital of the greatest nation on earth, the Persian Empire. Much of Daniel's vision is about Persia, and so it's appropriate that he finds himself in Susa. And he finds himself next to this waterway on the outskirts of the city. Verse 3, he says, I raised my eyes and I saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. Daniel sees a creature. Now, this is not a monstrous beast like he saw back in chapter 7. This is just a ram. And the defining feature of this ram is that it has two horns, which are asymmetrical. Now, what's going on here? Well, like the vision of chapter 7, this vision is highly symbolic. The ram is symbolic. What does it represent? Well, later in the chapter, Gabriel tells Daniel in verse 20, As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. Media and Persia were two powerful Iranian tribes. And for a long time, the Medes were the dominant Iranian tribe. But around the time Daniel had this vision, the Persians, another tribe which had historically been weaker than the Medes, rose up and defeated the Medes and swallowed them. The Persians created an empire, a union of these two peoples. And we see that depicted in the ram's horns. One horn, one tribe, the Medes was strong. The other, the Persians, came up later and became stronger. Now, if you were with us last week, you'll remember that this idea of an asymmetrical animal is something we saw in chapter 7. Chapter 7, Daniel saw four beasts, 
each representing a kingdom which would be dominant over the world in the future. And the second of these beasts, chapter 7, verse 5, was like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. Like the ram's horns of chapter 8, this beast was raised up on one side. These two pictures point to the same reality, the empire which vanquished Babylon, Persia. So Daniel sees a representation of Persia. And indeed, Persia devoured much. Look at verse 4. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. In 547 BC, around the time Daniel had this vision, Persia destroyed the kingdom of Lydia, which was to the north in what we call Turkey today. Seven years later, Persia marched west and destroyed Babylon. We saw that back in chapter 5. Over the next 15 years, the Persians went south and seized Phoenicia and Canaan. As a side note, if you've read the book of Ezra, you will remember that it is the Persians who sent the exiled Jews back to their homeland to rebuild their temple. But the Persians didn't just stop in Judah. They marched further south and they conquered Egypt. And within the next decade, they invaded Europe and they warred with Greece at their peak. The Persians controlled an empire stretching from Athens to India, an empire 20% larger than Rome at its peak. Persia was the greatest nation on earth. But things change. Look at verse 5. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. Daniel sees another animal arise in the west, a goat charging through the earth at great speed. That's probably what this means when it says it seems like he moved without touching the ground. What does this represent? Well, again, Gabriel tells us, verse 21, the goat is the king of Greece. So here comes Greece. Verse 5, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. Gabriel explains this as well in verse 21. The great horn between his eyes is the first king. The great horn of the goat corresponds to a leader you've probably heard of back in your world history class in high school, Alexander the Great. Alexander was an amazing figure of history. He was tutored by Aristotle. At age 20, he succeeded his father as king of Macedon, which is an area of northern Greece. Within a year, he had conquered Greece and crushed several rebellions, and then he turned east towards Persia. And the Lord showed Daniel what would happen next. Verse 6, the goat, Greece, came to the ram with two horns, Persia, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. In the year 334 B.C., Alexander invaded the Persian Empire. Within 19 months, he had conquered Turkey. Fourteen months after that, he had conquered Phoenicia and Judah and Egypt. Within another year, he had conquered the capital, Susa. By 330, he had taken the Persian homeland and the Persian king was dead. In four short years, Alexander utterly destroyed what had been the most powerful empire on earth for the previous 220 years. You say, okay, that's a lot of history. What should I take from this? Okay, 
I'm not sure if you watched any of the presidential debates, but if you did, you probably noticed a picture on the wall between the two candidates. It is the insignia of the Presidential Debate Commission, and it depicts an eagle, and in the eagle's beak is a banner that says, the Union and the Constitution forever. Now, that is a patriotic sentiment, but it's not right, because no human nation lasts forever. Nations, no matter how great or powerful they may seem, will fall. And as certain nations recede, other nations ascend to power. This is the way of the world. This is history. And more than that, it is the sovereign work of God. Job told his friends in Job 12, The Lord makes nations great, and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and leads them away. God is sovereign over the flow of history. Paul said at Mars Hill, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. God decides what nations exist, where they dwell, how powerful they become, and how long they last. Persia seemed to be mighty, but in God's timing, Persia quickly fell to Greece. Greece seemed to be mighty, but in God's timing, it underwent some rapid changes we're going to talk about in a minute. And ultimately, Greece fell to Rome. Friends, God brings down nations because he's just. And God doesn't just judge individuals. He also judges society. Fully one-sixth of the Old Testament prophetic books involve God declaring that he will hold various nations to account for their sins. And it doesn't matter how strong a nation may seem to be. Listen to Isaiah 40. God says, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. They are accounted like dust on the scales. I don't think I have any dust up here, but if I did, I'd, I'd get, it, get, get it stirred up. So you can see how minuscule dust is. That's what the power of earth is before God. Before God, the power of the nations is like nothing. None of them can resist God's sovereign purposes. God determines the rise and fall of nations. And you need to understand this for three reasons. First, so that you won't clutch what's transitory. That's the point Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 7 when he says, the present form of this world is passing away. Friends, don't put your hopes on the continuation of what we enjoy at the present time. Because we don't know how long the Lord has ordained our nation, our economy, our rights, and so forth to continue. The future is not guaranteed to look like the past. Maybe we will live to see things change in a dramatic way. Maybe we will live to see hard times and suffer because of it. Friends, that's why it's vital that we set our hope on the kingdom which will endure forever, not the kingdom which cannot last. Don't make the American dream and your stock portfolio the focus of your life. It won't endure. Put the things of Christ at the center of your hope because he will endure. Second, you need to know that our destiny is ultimately in the hands of the Lord, not of any man and not in the will of the electorate. If God wills, this country can survive another century. It will, if that's his choice. If God wills, this country could collapse this afternoon. Don't get so caught up in thinking that the future of this nation and the future of our lives is contingent on something as fickle as an election or as fragile as this man or that man leading us. Friends, it is the Lord who reigns. It is his purposes which will be accomplished. But third, I want you to remember that sometimes God relents from his intention to bring down a nation at a certain time if the nation repents of its sin. 
God told Jeremiah in 18 of his book, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will destroy it, and if that nation turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. Remember Jonah? God warned Nineveh through Jonah, and Nineveh repented, and the Lord spared them for a season. The reprieve was not indefinite. In time, Nineveh returned to its sinful ways, and they fell. But for a season, God extended their lease on life. And all that to say this, if you're really concerned about the future of this nation, rather than being fixated on the election and proclaiming the excellencies of your favorite candidate to anyone who will listen to you, proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to your neighbors. Because if the Lord does intend to lay this nation low, the right answer is not campaigning or just voting, it's repenting. And so nations rise and nations fall. Right, we come now to our second point, which is that leaders rise and leaders fall. Within six years of coming to the throne, Alexander had conquered Greece and Persia. He would spend another four years marching further east, ultimately getting into what is today Pakistan, before his army said, we're not going any further. At the age of 30, Alexander's empire stretched from Greece to India. Imagine being one of his subjects. Wow, what a great king. Look at all he accomplished, and he's so young. Nothing will resist him. He'll do everything he wants. But Daniel 8.8 8 says, Then the goat, Greece, became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken. At the height of his power, Alexander fell ill and died at the age of 32. The predominant theory is that a mosquito bit him and gave him malaria. So here's Alexander, undefeated in combat his whole life. He dies from a bug bite. There's a sermon about humility in that, isn't there? But when Alexander died, he had no children. And so according to legend, on his deathbed, his generals assembled around him and they said, Alexander, who do you want to succeed you? And he said, my empire should go to the strongest, not the sort of instruction that leads to the peaceful transition of power. And we see what happened next in verse 8. Instead of the great horn, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Gabriel interprets this in verse 22. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. Alexander's generals wound up dividing his kingdom. And after a series of wars, indeed, four kingdoms emerged, each ruled by the descendants of four of Alexander's generals. In the west, in Greece, the dynasty of Cassander, in Thrace to the north, the dynasty of Lysimachus. In Syria and Persia to the east, the dynasty of Seleucus. And in the south, in Egypt, the dynasty of Ptolemy. Chapter 11, we're going to learn a lot more about the descendants of Seleucus and Ptolemy. But this one great brief empire of Alexander became four weaker kings ruled by these four dynasties, just like Daniel saw. And this is consistent with chapter 7. You will remember that in the sequence of monstrous beasts, after the asymmetrical bear came a third beast, Daniel 7, 6, which was like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads. We see now why this repetition of the number four. Because the third empire, Greece, is destined to become four separate kingdoms. So, okay, what should we take from this? Leaders rise and they fall. And like the rise and fall of nations, the rise and fall of leaders is not coincidental. 
This is not an accident of history. This is part of the sovereign plan of God. In fact, this was a truth Daniel declared earlier in this book, back in chapter 2. Verse 21, he said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. In fact, this was the lesson God humbled Nebuchadnezzar so that he would learn in chapter 4, verse 25. That the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. God is sovereign over who our leaders are. The Apostle Paul says the same thing in Romans 13, verse 1. There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And so as we approach this election, I don't want you to be anxious. Whatever happens, whoever our leaders will be in the new year is firmly and irrevocably in the hand of the Lord. God will decide what happens. God will give this nation to whom he will, for our country's good or ill. So don't be anxious. Pray. Have faith, and yes, vote in line with your conscience. And remember the words of Psalm 146. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Human leaders, even the greatest and the most historically significant, they don't last very long. Alexander got 13 years. Napoleon and Caesar got 15. In this country, a president can't get more than eight. Human leaders don't endure, even the ones who last a long time. Eventually they go. Nobody stays in power forever on this earth. And whatever their policies were eventually get changed out by somebody else, be it now or in four or eight or 12 years. Friends, don't put your hope in something that's so fleeting. Our politicians are not our savior. Don't put your hope in them. Instead, listen to what the psalmist says. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. The Lord will reign forever, your God, O Zion, to all generations. Whoever wins on election day won't impact your eternal destiny one bit. If you don't know Christ, you still need to bend the knee to Jesus. And if you do know him, you're still going to be as secure as you were beforehand. So when you're worried, lean on the Lord and not the promises and lies of politicians. When you need hope, look to Christ whose reign is unending and who is forever faithful and gracious to his people and who is alone powerful enough to truly execute his plan for this world. Friends, don't worship men. Don't let politics control your mental or spiritual well-being. Worship the Lord and trust him only. All right, come now to our third point, which is that antichrists rise and for a limited period of time the people of God fall. Leaders rise and fall, and sometimes the leaders who rise are terribly wicked. Verse 9, out of one of them, the four horns that sprouted in verse 8, came a little horn. Now this verse has stumbled many interpreters, and it's easy to see why. In verse 7, the sequence of monstrous beasts ends with the emergence of a figure called the little horn. An arrogant, blasphemous, evil figure uh, who wars against God's people and for a season defeats them. The little horn of chapter 7. And last week we said this figure is the Antichrist, the final satanic ruler who will come to this world system, who will be overthrown and condemned at the return of Christ. But here in chapter 8 we find another figure called the Little Horn. And we will see that this Little Horn is very much like the Little Horn of chapter 7. And this is true so much so that a number of interpreters have tried to argue that the Little Horn of chapter 7 is the same individual as the Little Horn of chapter 8. And that might sound sensible at first, but a close reading of these two chapters reveals some serious difficulties with that view. 
Listen to how the little horn of chapter 7, the Antichrist, is introduced. Chapter 7, verse 7. After the four-headed leopard beast, Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong, it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up. So the little horn of chapter 7, the Antichrist, will emerge from the fourth beast, the fourth empire of world history, which we said was Rome. Antichrist will emerge as the 11th horn or king or kingdom proceeding from Rome sometime in the future. And he will gain ascendancy by defeating three of the other kings or kingdoms who proceed from Rome. All that is entirely different from what we find in chapter 8. The little horn of chapter 8 emerges from the goat with four horns, which is Greece, not Rome. The third beast of chapter 7, not the fourth. He is not one of the eleven horns proceeding from Rome. Rather, he is a little horn growing out from one of the four horns or kingdoms that succeed Alexander. The backgrounds of these two little horns are in no way parallel. These two little horns refer to two different individuals in world history. So why then are they both given this same label, the little horn? And the answer is, their character and their conduct are remarkably similar. There's a pattern of evil which repeats in these two figures. So let's now look at the little horn of chapter 8, not the final Antichrist, but rather a figure from history who winds up being a lot like what the final Antichrist will be. The angel Gabriel gives some insight into this individual, verse 23. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. Daniel sees the little horn of chapter 8 arising at a moment in time when two things are true. First, it will be the final years of the four kingdoms of the Greek Empire. And second, he will arise when the transgressors have reached their limit. The Hebrew word translated transgressor here speaks of individuals who are rebelling against a covenantal relationship. And so this is best understood as speaking of a time when many Jewish people will be in rebellion against Israel's covenant with God. And there's a fair amount of Jewish literature from the final years of the Greek Empire. And this literature tells us that during the final years of the Greek Empire, many Jews in Jerusalem decided to reject Judaism and start living like Greek pagans. They preferred the surrounding worldly culture to the life of holiness God called them to. The men underwent painful reverse circumcision operations to remove the mark of the covenant. They acted and lived and worshipped like pagans, and in all this disloyalty, they forgot the Lord. But the Lord didn't forget them, and he watched as they continued to fill up the quantity of sin until they became ripe for judgment, and their judgment comes in the form of this evil king, the little horn. <clears throat> Second Thessalonians 2 tells us likewise, the final Antichrist will emerge at a time of apostasy. In the same way, the little horn of chapter 8 emerges at a time in which the people of God are falling away. Now, this evil king is described as being of bold face. The expression means he's harsh. More than that, he understands riddles. Probably this means he is politically cunning. He is a Machiavellian schemer. And more than all that, verse 24, his power shall be great, but not by his own power. He will be strong, but his strength comes not from himself, but from someone else. Say, from whom? Apparently Satan. God allows Satan's man to come to power over God's people as an act of judgment upon them for their rebellion. 
Now, who is this evil king? Based on what we're about to read, nearly all interpreters identify the little horn of chapter 8 as one of the kings of the Seleucid Empire, the Greek kingdom that followed Alexander, which was in Syria and Persia. And the name of this king was Antiochus IV. He reigned from 175 to 164 BC. Who was Antiochus IV and what did he do? Well, we learn about him in this chapter, in chapter 11. The first thing we learn is he is a little horn. He is no Alexander being a dashing figure across the pages of history. He's not even a conspicuous horn like Alexander's successors. He rather begins as an insignificant figure. Antiochus fits that bill. He was born as the eighth child in the royal family of the Seleucid Empire. Seemed unlikely he would ever become king. He was sent away as a political hostage to Rome. But a series of unlikely events allowed him to gain his freedom. And a series of murders, some of which he performed, allowed him to seize the throne, including he murdered his infant nephew. Once he had the throne, he became powerful. Look at verse 9. He grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the glorious land. Antiochus launched a surprise attack against Egypt to the south, and he conquered nearly the whole nation. He did so well in Egypt, Rome threatened him with war if he didn't back off. So he turned to the east, and he fought the Armenians and the Parthians, and initially he enjoyed success against them too. But what Antiochus is really infamous for is his conduct towards what Daniel calls the glorious land. As part of his wars with Egypt, Antiochus wound up ruling over the Jews who had settled in the promised land after they'd been sent home from exile. In the year 171 BC, Antiochus installed a puppet as the high priest in the temple. Two years later, there was a Jewish revolt against this false high priest, and this incident caused Antiochus to want to punish the Jews. And that's what we see now taking center stage in chapter 8. Look at verse 10. It says, It, the little horn, grew great, even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars, it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. This is a difficult verse. First part's straightforward enough. Antiochus was arrogant. It was like he scraped heaven. He thought he was so grand. But the second part is more difficult. What does it mean that he throws down some of the stars? Remember, this is a symbolic vision. We should not take this literally. What do the stars represent? Well, some people have interpreted the stars to be angels. More likely, the symbol comes from Genesis 15.5. The Lord said to Abram, Look towards heaven and number the stars. If you're able to number them, so shall your offspring be. The people of God are associated with the stars of heaven. Jeremiah 33 makes the same connection, and so does Daniel chapter 12, where we read that the ultimate end of believers will be that they shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, like the stars forever and ever. Stars probably represent the people of God, and Antiochus went to war with them and destroyed many of them. That's what Gabriel says plainly later in this chapter. Verse 24, he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. But not only does Antiochus lift himself up against God's people, he lifts himself up against the Lord. Look at verse 11. It, the little horn, became great, as great as the prince of the host. Hey, who's the prince of the host? Read, keep reading. Verse 11, and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, the prince of the host, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. The prince of the host is the one to whom the sacrifices in the temple belong. The prince of the host is the Lord. Antiochus wants to be like God. You know what title Antiochus took for himself? Epiphanes. 
It's a Greek term that means the manifestation of God. Antiochus said, I am God in the flesh. If that's not Antichrist, what is? And while blasphemously claiming that, what did he do? He oppressed the Jewish religion. History tells us he plundered the temple of God. He unveiled the Holy of Holies. He banned the offering of sacrifices. He compelled Jews to offer sacrifices to idols. He outlawed obedience to the Torah. And if you owned a copy of the Torah, you were killed. He forbade circumcision on pain of death. If a baby was circumcised, the baby was killed and hung around the mother's neck. And if that wasn't bad enough, he defiled the temple by performing a sacrilege called the, named in the Bible the abomination of desolation. He went into the temple in Jerusalem. He put a statue of Zeus on top of the sacrificial altar. And he sacrificed a pig, the most unclean animal, to Zeus on the altar of the Lord. This is the height of blasphemy. A blasphemy which should be repeated in the future. Antiochus declared war upon the people of God and the worship of God. Verse 12, it says, And a host will be given over to it, the little horn, together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. Here again, we find this word meaning covenant disloyalty. <clears throat> I understand this to be saying, Because of the sins of the Jews who rejected Judaism to live as pagans, the host, the people of God, are given over to Antiochus, and the temple is given over to him. Verse 12, and listen to this. It will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Antiochus had no regard for the truth, the truth of God, the truth of God's word. He rejected it, and he did what he wanted to do. And Gabriel says the, the same thing in verse 25. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many. This is a man whose reign is marked by lies and evil and self-exaltation. And for a season, he enjoyed victory over all that is holy. This is a pretty dark section of the Bible. What should we take from this? Two things, I think. First, we need a biblical notion of Antichrist. If you asked most Americans about who the Antichrist is today, they'd put him in the same category as Dracula or Frankenstein's monster. Antichrist is the stuff of a horror film, the omen or whatever. If you ask most Christians about the Antichrist today, they'd tell you he's a world ruler in the future. But the Bible tells us Antichrist is more than that. Yes, in the end, there will be the final man of sin, the final wicked ruler of this world. But listen to 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. You have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Antichrist isn't just something in the future. Antichrists have existed across human history. Miniature Antichrists foreshadowing the evil one who comes at the end. Now, you might hear this and think, oh, that makes sense. Hitler and Stalin and Mao, evil world leaders. That's not what John's talking about. The next verse in 1 John, he says of these antichrists, they went out from us, but they were not of us. He's not talking about world leaders. He's talking about apostates and heretics, the enemies of the cross. The spirit of antichrist is more than just a strongman dictator. Friends, we encounter antichrists all the time. Those who hate the gospel, those who want to mislead the people of God are antichrists. And tragically, antichrists sometimes wind up in leadership, in governments, in churches, at work, or at school. And antichrists are dangerous to the people of God. I say, why? 
Because antichrists are deceivers. Like Antiochus, they manipulate, they connive, they scheme, they distort reality, they redefine virtue, they call evil good and good evil. That's what the little horn of chapter 7 does. They cast truth to the ground like Antiochus did. And what is their purpose? To deceive people into following them. They even want to deceive the elect, Jesus says in Matthew 24. They want to stumble God's people away from the gospel. And so we must be careful, friends. We must be discerning. We must learn the characteristics of Antichrist for our own protection. And we can do that by studying Antiochus, who the Bible presents to us as a mirror of the final Antichrist and therefore a representative of all Antichrists. So here are some things to learn and take note of. First, Antichrists are arrogant. They may not claim to be God like Antiochus did or the final Antichrist will, but they are arrogant. They do what they want to do. They are unwilling to bow to the Lordship of Christ or be constrained by God's Word. Antichrists want to undermine the people of God in their worship. Like Antiochus, they attack the sacrifice of God. We don't practice burnt offerings anymore, but who is the final and ultimate sacrifice? It's Christ, an Antichrist and malign Christ. Like Antiochus, they defile the temple of God, no longer a building in Jerusalem, but now the church, the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, according to Ephesians 2. Antichrists infiltrate the church and they sow error and they promote licentiousness and discord. They want to mislead and corrupt believers. Antichrists are empowered by Satan. Antiochus' power is said to come from outside himself. Similarly, the man of sin's appearing will be by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders, according to 2 Thessalonians 2. Antichrists gain influence because Satan props them up and they reflect Satan in their arrogance in their lies and by their hateful destructiveness. In John 8, Jesus said, Satan's a murderer from the beginning. And Antichrist want to harm the people of God. And that's the second thing I've got to tell you here, friends. There's this idea today that if we just get the right people on the Supreme Court and the right guy in the White House, we can stave off persecution going forward. Friends, that is false. Because the scripture says in 2 Timothy 3.11, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It doesn't say if the other party gets it. They will be persecuted. That is a universal truth in this world. Godliness leads to opposition. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. It is an immutable law of nature. Friends, if you live for Christ, you will face opposition no matter who wins in November. Because there are many Antichrist in our school, at work, in our social circles. And if they cannot deceive us, they will attack us. As we live for Christ, we will face opposition. They may not be able to do to us what Antiochus did to Israel, but they can discriminate against us. They can ostracize us, cancel culture. They can sue us. Persecution exists, friends, and it will get worse. Someday it will stop just being social and workplace persecution. Someday persecution will be the law of every land. We cannot thwart what the Bible declares will happen. Antiochus criminalized the worship of God. He banned the Bible. He criminalized obedience. And Antichrist will do the same. And those who are faithful to the Lord will face terribly hard choices. It is coming, friends. Don't be deceived. No election and no judicial appointments will stop that. The Word of God says so. Antichrists rise. And the Bible says, that, like Daniel saw in his vision, 
Throughout history, for limited periods of time, God lets his people suffer at the hands of Antichrist. But our final point is that the Lord reigns and that he limits the extent and duration of evil that his people must suffer. Daniel has seen the horrible vision of the little horn, but the vision doesn't end with Antiochus winning. It ends with his ruin. Look at verse 13. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For twenty-three hundred evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Daniel hears two angels talking about when is, how long will Antiochus be allowed to torment the Jews? And, and this answer is given, 2,300 evenings and mornings. And I, I take this to be a literal number, representing about six years and three months. And at that time, these angels say, the defiled sanctuary will be restored, and Antiochus' evil will be purged. Gabriel says more, look at verse 25. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true. The little horn, Antiochus, will defy the prince of princes. He will defy the Lord, but he will be broken. He will die. And his death won't come from men. It will come from God. And Gabriel guarantees that all of this is going to happen. Say, so, well, how does this line up with history? I told you a few minutes ago, in 171 B.C., Antiochus put a false high priest in charge of the temple, beginning his control of the temple. And like this prophecy says, about six years later, in 165, Antiochus' influence over the temple ended. A Jewish revolt led by a guy named Judah Maccabee seized the temple. The temple was purified and rededicated. The sacrifices began again. This is the origin of the Jewish festival of Hanukkah. And not only did Antiochus' evil influence end, his life ended too. The next year, he went on campaign, he fell ill suddenly, and he died. And Antiochus learned that he was not God as the Lord smote him. This vision came absolutely true in every particular. We can teach history from this prophecy, from the fall of Persia to the ascent of Greece, from the death of Alexander to the division of his kingdom, from the wickedness of Antiochus until the purification of the temple. Friends, the Lord's word is reliable and it is good. But what should we take from these last verses? First of all, know that even in evil times, uh, when God's people suffer, the Lord still reigns. When Antiochus was tormenting the Jews, God had not abdicated his throne. The Jews may have cried out to God, How long, O Lord? But the answer to that question was not a mystery to God. God had ordained to the day the amount of his time his people would have to suffer under Antiochus. And when that amount of time ended, his people were delivered. It'll be the same way in the end. Antichrist will have power on the earth. He will slay many believers. The martyred saints in heaven cry out in Revelation 6, How long, O Lord? It won't last forever. Revelation seems to indicate Antichrist's reign will be limited to seven years. Languishing in suffering under evil men is not the final destiny of the people of God. For his own good purposes, God does allow us to be sifted and tested, to purify us, to grow us, to sanctify us. That's what happened to Peter. Before Peter denied Christ, Jesus said to him, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. That's not a very good message, right? Satan wants a piece of me. That's a terrifying thing. And bad things came upon Peter because of this sin and shame. You say, why did God allow that? 
Because Jesus said in the next verse in Luke 22, I've prayed for you that your faith might not fail, and when, not if, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus knew this terrible experience was the experience Peter needed to become the man who would strengthen the other apostles. Friends, God uses hardship to make us into what we need to be. But make no mistake, that hardship is real and painful. But it is restrained and limited by God. Even Satan, who stands behind all the Antichrists who attack the people of God, he rages at the church. And why? Revelation 12, 12 says he knows his time is short. Even Satan's power is constrained and limited by the Lord. Friends, we need to know God is sovereign over every period of hardship that we face. And in God's mercy and kindness, he limits it. And this shows God's absolute power over all things, including his power over his enemies. And this should encourage us to pray because God is in control over the times we suffer. To hold fast because God will soon deliver us from hardship. And to be encouraged because in the end, he will overthrow evil and he will give his people restoration and victory. And let me explain this in a kind of an indirect way here at the end. This vision is really strange and confusing. Say, so what is the point of this passage? I think we get the answer to that in the last two verses. Look at verse 26. Gabriel tells Daniel, seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. God tells Daniel, keep this under wraps. This is not for your contemporaries. This is for a later generation. In fact, this vision isn't even really for Daniel. Look at verse 27. It says, And I, Daniel, was overcome, and I lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision, and I did not understand it. What Daniel saw in this vision overwhelmed him. It disgusted him. The people of God would suffer at the hands of an evil man like Antiochus. But notice at the end of verse 27 that even Daniel did not really understand this vision. How can that be? This is Daniel. This is the man in chapter 1 that we read God gave understanding in all visions. This is a guy who just had an angel explain the vision to him. How can he not understand it? Because while Daniel understood the words of the vision, he had no frame of reference to understand what it was describing. For us, the events of this chapter are our history. We can look back and see how this vision came to pass. When Daniel received this vision, Babylon was still mighty. Persia was a fledgling state. Greece was a bunch of disconnected cities. Alexander wouldn't be born for another 200 years. Daniel doesn't understand what he's seeing in this vision because what it relates is foreign to his world. This is one reason I get concerned when I hear some Christians talk with absolute certainty about how they have figured out how every detail of end times prophecy fits neatly together. We've got to be careful, friends. We need humility in the face of prophecy. Because as Isaac Newton once warned, God gave prophecies not to gratify men's curiosities by enabling them to foreknow things, but that after they were fulfilled, they might be interpreted by the event. And that God's own providence, not the interpreters, be manifested to the world. We may think we know things, but so did the Pharisees. Weren't they surprised when they saw what the Messiah was really like, not quite what they thought? Let's have humility when we study prophecy, because we may not have the frame of reference to fully understand what it all means. Daniel didn't, but the people who live at the time of the fulfillment do. And in the case of Daniel 8, those were the Jews in Antiochus' time. And for them, this vision said, there is a limit to the suffering that you are enduring. They needed to know the fulfillment of this vision signaled the end. Did you notice that phrase in this chapter? Verse 17, the vision is for the time of the end. 
Verse 19, it refers to the appointed time of the end. The end of what? The end of history? No. In verse 19, Gabriel tells Daniel, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation. This word indignation always, with one exception, means the wrath of God in the Old Testament. The book of Daniel began with Israelites being taken into exile because of God judging their sin. They lost their land. They lost their independence. And yes, the Persians gave them back their land, but in Antiochus' day, they were still not independent. They still suffered under Gentile rule. But here we are told, and here they are told, when you see this dark time come, when you see this evil man appear, then know the time of God's anger towards you is almost over. The time of your freedom is here again. Friends, this passage may sound like bad news to us, but for the people to whom this vision was intended, this was good news. Deliverance was at hand. And friends, that's what we need to know too. We live in an evil world. Nations rise and nations fall. Leaders rise and fall. Antichrists rise and they torment the people of God. But God rules over all this. And in the end, he will deliver us and he will give us victory. The Lord will vanquish every Antichrist. Antiochus was struck dead. The final Antichrist, 2 Thessalonians 2 says, the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth. And every Antichrist will be overthrown. 2 Thessalonians 1 says, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Friends, the adversaries of God's people will face justice. And Christ will establish his righteous kingdom where we will dwell forever if we know Jesus. But until then, how should we live? When the passage where we read about Satan raging against the people of God, we find these words. Revelation 12, 12. They have conquered Satan by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even to death. Friends, our victory over the evil of this world is in the cross of Christ alone. It is not in the ballot box. It is Jesus who has triumphed over every spiritual adversary. And if we faithfully live in light of that, we shall prevail. Yes, the enemy will make our lives miserable. We may even be martyred. You ever think about that? You may someday be martyred. But we must be willing to die for our faith. And if we die, the Lord will raise us to life again with the saints in endless victory in the new creation. Paul says at the end of his passage on the resurrection, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So friends, to conclude, don't cling to the things of this world. Don't clutch what is passing away. Don't put your hope in nations because they don't endure. Don't put your hope in leaders because they don't last. Don't think you can avoid persecution through playing politics. Don't despair when hard times come because the Lord reigns and He is sovereign over all that we face and He has limited the evil that we face and He will deliver us into full and final victory. And so the book of Jude says, Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever.